Romans 15, and we'll pick up where we left off last week, beginning in verse 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessing, they ought also to be of some service to them in material blessings." When therefore, verse 28, I have completed this and I have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the peace, excuse me, may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Father, once again we stand in your presence. We beg for your mercy. Our minds are dark and feeble, and your wisdom is limitless. Our learning is often divided. Our attention is mixed. Our ability to study and to know you is hindered by our sin nature. Our Motives and ambitions are tainted. And so, Lord, we come to you this morning as broken people, (laughs) admitting our brokenness, and we're asking that you would pour your divine wisdom into our rotten brains. So, Lord, help us. Help us. We have come today in your name on this your day. May you meet that simple obedience with exceptional grace and mercy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. May be seated. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul, of course, wrote those famous words of advice 
in his first letter to the church in Corinth, a church that had a lot of issues to sort out. In an effort to communicate a Christian principle, Paul says, here's how I do it, follow my example. Here is a Christian principle for life, look at me as I live it and imitate me. So to understand what it is that he was asking them to imitate, we have to back up just a verse or two and explore what principle he was communicating. And when you look at the closing verses of chapter 10 in 1 Corinthians, you might sum up those last few verses this way. Christians don't live for themselves. We live for the good of others and the glory of God. Christians don't live for themselves. We live for the good of others and the glory of God. And Paul says, look at my life, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I don't live for myself, I live for the good of others and for the glory of God. And in that, in obedience to that principle, we prosper and we have joy. We don't seek prosperity and joy. We find prosperity and joy in living for the good of others and the glory of God. Now, of course, the very notion of prosperity has been adulterated. And so we must recognize that what good prosperity is is nothing like the notion of what various prosperity preachers offer. All of those things are me-centered. Biblical prosperity is others-centered and God-centered. And so Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Live for the good of others. The good of others is, of course, ultimately their salvation, the highest good, the best good that we can give them is the true gospel. We are desperately in need of a savior. We are at war with God by default. We are not good in and of ourselves in any way, shape, or form. And our general not goodness leads to eternal damnation unless we are to receive the grace gift of God. Simply accept that which is offered to you. Be saved from that eternal demise and be saved to a new glorious purpose. To live for the good of others and the glory of God. That's the greatest good we can offer, and of course then there is the glory of God. Another famous verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. I like to think on that verse when I'm eating a bowl of ice cream or a big slice of pizza. <laughs> Praise the Lord. No, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, do all things unto the glory of God. It's a 
challenging idea. The word glory is the Greek word dakeo. It means think. But it's not a verb, it's a noun. So we don't do the glory of God. It is rather a substance on which we think as we live and breathe. Think about God. His goodness, his holiness, his sacrifice, his provision. I mean, you can continue. His, his creativity in the colors of creation, his, his marvelous mind in the wisdom of digestion, his incredible capacity for creation and physics in the governance of the earth and oxygen and decomposition and how that fuels future growth. I mean, really, it just is endless. Think on these things as you eat, drink, or whatever you do. You're thinking on the glory of God. That is his attributes. It's an interesting concept. And so after Paul talks about this, you don't live for yourself, you live for others, you live for God. You don't exist for yourself, you exist for the good of others and for the glory of God. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. If you look at and listen to the way I live, you'll see an example of what this looks like. That's what Paul is saying in context in that famous verse. Well, I find that to be a helpful way to approach these verses in Romans chapter 15. Recognizing that Paul is exemplifying attributes we ought to imitate. Okay? It's not direct, it's indirect. It's not explicit, it's implicit. Some portions of scripture are obvious. They punch you in the face, right? It's clear. Other parts like this, we're, we're eavesdropping in the closing portions of a personal letter. And yet these have been regarded as the canon of scripture, protected, preserved by God, inspired by his spirit. Therefore, they are, like every other verse in the Bible, profitable for our good, for our maturation to make us whole. They're good for instruction, and so on. Well, in Romans 15, 22 through 33, here is the title of the sermon, Three Attributes That Deserve Imitation. Three Attributes Deserving of Imitation. I'm going to give all three of them to you this morning. We'll only explore the first one. Three attributes worth imitating that deserve imitation. The first of which is confidence in the providence of God. Confidence in the providence of God. We find this in, implicit in verses 22 and 23. I'll give you the second before we explore. The second one is facilitating the practical work of the church. Facilitating the practical work of the church if they jump. No, see, you have to, yeah, they would have to jump all over the place to put it up on the screen. So you just have to listen to me. Oh, there it is. They did it. Look at that. Facilitating the practical work of the church. That's verses 24 through 29. And then thirdly, boldness and peace. 
in prayer and petition. Boldness and peace in prayer and petition, and naturally that's verses 30 through 33. There you have the rough outline for the next, I don't know, eight sermons. So let's go back to number one and consider this first attribute implied in this text, worthy of imitation for you and I. Confidence in the providence of God. Verse 22, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. What's the reason? Well, verse 21, those who have never been told of him will see. Those who have never been never heard will understand. What's he talking about? He's talking about spreading the gospel. By verse 19, power of signs and wonders. That's the, that's the, uh, the, the instrument through which the Holy Spirit affirmed the message of the gospel in Paul. Power of signs and wonders. So that from the heart of the Gentile world to the heart of the Jewish world, from Jerusalem to Illyricum, he has fulfilled the ministry of the gospel. It is for this reason, verse 22, that I have so often been hindered from coming to you. What's expressed here is confidence in the providence of God. Well, in order to explore this, we have to answer one simple question. Look here, point, sub point A. What is providence? There are many definitions. Not all of them are easy. I'll offer a few and hopefully you can make some amalgamation that makes sense to you. Providence is God's wise and loving governance of all things in the universe. It's the simplest I can make it. God's wise and loving governance of all things in the universe. In the New Testament, the word all is often an all-encompassing word. There are no caveats, there are no limitations to it. And so with that definition, I offer the same. All things. That is, every moment, every action, every good, every evil, every atom in the universe is wisely and lovingly governed by God. Here's another brief definition. The doctrine of divine providence asserts that God is in complete control of all things. It's helpful. The doctrine of divine providence asserts that God is in complete control of all things. Wayne Grudem offers this, God cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. Right? (laughs) What are the all things that God directs? Well, let's consider six briefly. God directs the universe. Psalm 103, 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. He directs the universe, that is, spiritual and physical all. Specifically, he governs the physical world, Matthew 5, 45. He makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. 
and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. This implies that God's governance over the world does not simply is not limited to his governance over his own people. No, he makes the, the sun to rise on the good and evil. He sends rain which nourishes the ground, feeds the thirsty, compels crops to grow for the just and the unjust. So he rules the entire physical world. He oversees the affairs of nations. Psalm 66, verse 7 He rules by his might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. Just a brief survey of Israel's Old Testament history shows you that God governs and oversees the nations, right? As God uses the rising Babylonian empire as his discipline, his rod of discipline for his people Israel. Does the same thing with Egypt to both protect them and also to drive them out. It's remarkable the way that God manipulates, for lack of a better term, the nations of the world throughout the history of the world in such dramatic and obvious detail. Every bit of archaeological and historical extra-biblical evidence goes to support exactly what the Bible claims about these periods of time in history. It's remarkable. God oversees the affairs of nations. Fourthly, he oversees human destiny. Galatians 1.15, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace. Paul says he set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace. His providence oversees human destiny. Of course, it's implied in Ephesians 1. Additionally, regarding his predeterminate election. Fifthly, God, God's providence presides over human successes and failures. Luke one fifty two. he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. You think God's too preoccupied to worry about the the individual lives of, of mere humans that live but 70 or 80 years? No. He governs human success and failure. And then finally, number six, God's providence oversees the protection of his people. Psalm 4, verse 8, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For, look, you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Not my jujitsu skills make me dwell in safety, right? Not the locks on my fortress make me dwell in safety, right? Not the six hour P365 9 millimeter concealed carry. That doesn't make me dwell. You, look, Alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Because he providentially oversees the protection of his people. Paul expresses in these few verses a particular confidence in this divine providence. It's not a question of whether God is 
divinely provident over the world. That's not in question. You can question that and you should question that. You should poke holes in that assertion until you can find none. That's not what's in question. What's in question is the confidence one has in God's divine providence. And that's expressed clearly by Paul in verse 22. This is the reason. This is why I have been hindered. What's the why? Well, spreading the gospel, verse 21. This was his duty. And yet, look, for a long time, Paul says, it has been his desire to come to the church in Rome, to see them, to minister to them, to fellowship with them. I mean, you listen to the way he speaks in verse 32, to come with joy and be refreshed in your company. I know what that feels like. I, I, can, I can feel those words as I read them because I, I think of like my close friends who live far away who within 30 seconds of being in their physical presence, I'm laughing the hardest I've laughed in my life all over again. There is a particular refreshment in the company of those who you love deeply. And here, Paul speaks of this church as if they exist in that sphere, and yet he's never met them. Isn't that remarkable? What does that tell us well that tells us that this desire he speaks of that that he so longs to come and see them it's real he really loves them he really wants to be in their presence and yet he had a duty he was hindered by his duty was he hindered by duty or was he hindered by god's providence All right? Who wants to take a stab? All right? The answer is yes. Yeah. Paul's confidence in God's providence allowed him to put his duty before desire. To put duty before desire. If we're to be like Paul, we must exert that same self-discipline. Look, to do the difficult task at hand set the dream aside until God and his providence makes it possible. Do the difficult task at hand, set the dream aside until God and his providence makes it possible. That's what we see with Paul. And so just, just briefly by way of application, look, if you have young children, for example, you will be hindered in the pursuit of your dreams. Guaranteed, right? Right? financially and otherwise. I would have had that 72 TC10 pickup a long time ago if I didn't have five children. Believe you me. Duty before desire. You will be hindered in your dreams by the necessity to raise them to fear and love the Lord. And if you do this right, mom and dad, it will take every ounce of what you have. There is no dream worth pursuing that excuses you, mom and dad, from this duty. If you are young and single, you also have a duty, and that is to flee youthful passions and prepare yourself for marriage or for a life of celibacy in 
purity. That's your duty. But I have these desires. Yep, so did Paul. Confidence in God's providence allows us to put duty before desire. If you're an empty nester, you have a duty, and that is to invest in the lives of the young marriages and people around you. But, congratulations, you have more freedom to pursue some of those dreams. Why? Because you've fulfilled your duty. Right? If you are ancient and your body is breaking down, I hope you can look back on your life and observe both the times of sacrificial duty and the times of chasing dreams, fulfilling desires. For everything there is a season, the preacher says in Ecclesiastes. A season for duty and then a season for travel. I love nothing more than to hear about the stories of my, my wife's precious grandmother traveling across the nation with her now late husband. You can be content in whatever season you find yourself if you have confidence in God's providence. The enemy, of course, of confidence in God's providence is fear. But what if I never get to... But what if I don't... But if I pass up this opportunity, fear... Well, let's consider some other things that a particular confidence in God's providence leads to. First, contentedness in circumstance. Wait, what did I skip? No, I just mislabeled something. I don't know. What's the next thing? Yeah, contentedness in circumstance. Good. Look at this, while Paul was disappointed to have been hindered, he was at peace that he was exactly where he needed to be. This is the reason I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, verse 23, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. But not just to say hi, he says, I'm going to come and hang. I'm going to live with you and dwell with you and be refreshed and enjoy your company. So Paul was disappointed to have been hindered, yet he was at peace that he was exactly where he needed to be. He was contented in his circumstance. Of course, circumstance is an illusion. Coincidence is an illusion. These things take on new meaning for the one who is confident in God's providence. Oftentimes when I speak with my... my um, my friends who are as passionate uh, in Reformed theology as I am, if you ever use the word circumstance, they'll go, well, there is no such thing as circumstance. So just by coincidence, I was over, well, there is no such thing as coincidence. There is only God's providence, right? No, but they're not wrong. Proverbs 16, 9, famously, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes or directs his steps. You make your plans, but it's the Lord who directs them. Paul, in writing to the, Thess- to the Thessalonians, he says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we were ripped away physically, but not spiritually, We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. 
I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us, leading us to ask, was it Satan who hindered him? Or was it God's providence? Or was it coincidence? Or circumstance? Or was it the shipwreck? Or the bad weather that caused the shipwreck? What was it that hindered Paul's travel? In the meantime, Paul, as he's being hindered from returning to the church in Thessalonica, is preaching the gospel on an island where the bad weather wrecked their ship, delaying his arrival the intended months and months. Was it coincidence? Coincidence is a fragment of the imagination made up by men with darkened minds who need something to grasp onto because they have no contentedness in God's providence. This is not unlike the scientific definitions of, of the strong force, as it is called. Who knows what the strong force is, scientifically speaking? No, not this. I'm talking about science. Sorry. I feel like I'm, I'm like silently, subconsciously, and sometimes audibly apologizing to my wife every sermon. I'm sorry I shouldn't have said that, baby. The strong force is scientifically speaking, it's the force of nature that holds together the neutrons and the protons in the nucleus of every atom that makes up every thing in the universe. And scientists say, we have examined and studied and we have split particles, we have fused particles, like there's all kinds of stuff we have done. It's been bonkers. And yet we cannot figure out what this strength is that holds the neutrons and the protons together in the nucleus of an atom. And so they just call it the strong force. What is it? It's the strong force. What is the strong force? They say it's the strongest force known in the universe. And then they move on. You go, what? That's it? They go, yeah, that's it. Moving on. Well, that's not very scientific, is it? Colossians 1, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, listen, and in him all things hold together. It's the strong force. We search for something else to explain things we don't understand when we lack confidence in the providence of God. And so confidence in the providence of God leads to contentedness in circumstance. And I, yeah, circumstance, right? Next, confidence in God's providence leads to composure in leaps of faith. Composure and leaps of faith. We don't have time, but if you were to go into the story that tracks the apostles' movement and the spread of the church in the first century found in the book of Acts, um, it's essentially a marvelous, uh, it, it reads like an, like an amazing novel. What you find is, is that Paul was determined to go to Jerusalem. In fact, he's writing about it right here. He's talking about his trip to Jerusalem. He made three journeys, kind of circumnavigating the Mediterranean, if you will. Um, 
And, and this last time he was, in, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And all along the way, as he made stops in various cities and visiting various churches that had been planted either by him or by others, he uh, was being warned by, by divine prophetic utterances of the Holy Spirit through people that if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound in chains. They, one, in one instance, they wrapped their hands in their own belt and they said, this, the Lord says, is what will happen to you if you go to Jerusalem. Paul's like, all right, let's go. I wasn't afraid. He had been stoned. He had been shipwrecked. He had been accused. He had been run out of towns and uh, mobs had been whipped up in anger at him. I mean, that's sort of the circumstances around the church in Thessalonica. He was there, he was ministering, spreading the gospel, and it, it was a terrible offense to their economic prosperity. And a mob literally carried him out of the town square. Can you imagine that? Being so violently opposed to this message. Not to someone's actions, just to the message that a, a raucous mob would lift you and your compatriots and just carry you out in anger, have you arrested, have the gentleman who you are staying at his house, the local guy, got him Jason, have him put in jail, have him responsible for whatever financial consequences that you and your message have invoked. And yet, in spite of those types of predictions, Paul had a particular composure in taking steps or leaps of faith. He responded boldly to those predictions. When Leslie and I were expecting our fifth child, we were outgrowing our van, which was also breaking down. You know how it gets to the point that the repairs cost more than the vehicle is worth? That's where we were. She, being nine months pregnant, took a bold leap of faith, metaphorically speaking, of course. We took a 15% pay cut and had to buy a new car at the same time to come to a dying church and do a job I had never done. It had better pan out, or else we are in trouble. But having prayed and waited for the Lord and having watched him over the course of our marriage, answer our prayers so obviously, the Lord built in us a particular confidence in his providence, even though the optics and the financial numbers didn't add up. Confidence in providence enables boldness in leaps of faith, composure in steps of faith. Fourthly, Confidence in God's providence enables submission in planning. Submission in planning. See? D. Yep. Let's look at it again, beginning in verse 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you, but now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for, look, many years to come to you. I hope to see you, verse 24, in passing. I hope to see you as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints. In, in these few verses, we observe Paul's plans to go to Rome 
for many years. Secondly, we see Paul's submission to delay those plans in order to fulfill his duty, where in the other part of the Gentile world. Thirdly, we see Paul's new plans to finally see this desire coming. I'm coming, I'm on my way, I'm making plans, I'm going to Spain and I'm gonna stop in Rome on my way. So he's had plans, he delayed those plans, he's got new plans, and then fourthly, we see Paul's continual submission in yet another delay. I'm not heading straight there, I've still got one more stop to make and that's to fulfill this duty that I have in Jerusalem submission and planning is he bothered is he vexed is he anxious no again Proverbs 16 the lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord not only is Paul at peace and his plans being redirected by the providence of God but Paul makes clear His own plans are subject to it. It's not just that he has has confidence that God is overseeing the world. Maybe God's overseeing the world. That doesn't lead to idleness. That leads to carefully laid plans that are then, if you will, laid at the feet of God. He's at peace with his plans being redirected by the providence of God. James said something similar. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. I tell you, every time I hear someone like in my church family begin to say, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that, I always get really nervous because of this verse. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we go to such and such a town. We'll spend a year there, we'll trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. A, if the Lord wills, I'll keep breathing tomorrow and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. See, the great antithesis of that type of arrogant, evil boasting and things about which we cannot control and do not know, the antithesis of that is submission to God's providence in all of our planning. Okay? Make your plans and submit them to God. And when he rewrites them, Confidence in God's providence allows you to just submit. Okay, sounds good. So confidence in providence offers contentedness in circumstance, composure in leaps of faith, submission in planning. Finally, it offers comfort in ignorance. Comfort in ignorance. It is a common attribute I hear people appreciate in someone else when they say, 
you know, I don't know. But I'm going to look into that. I often hear people admire that. Man, I appreciate that. That pastor said, I'm not really sure. You know what I mean? Or that guy at work or my wife or whomever. They said, you know, I don't know, but I'm going to look into that. Deep questions, not really sure. And then like in the very next breath, we are so hesitant to do the same. God oversees all things in the world, including every atom that operates with evil intentions. How do you reconcile that? We would do well to do that thing that we often so admire in others and just go, not really sure. I... Maybe it's the, you know, Charlotte Mecklenburg School's public education in me. Uh, Maybe it's my very sort of informal, you know, theological training. Maybe it's um, uh, my desire to, to, to be, you know, fun and funny more than it is to, to be a, a boring scholar cooped up in a, study, smoking a pipe, writing books. Uh, I don't know what it is about me, but I find a particular comfort in ignorance. I, I relish in this notion that there are things about God's character and his justice and his wisdom that are just too big for my stupid little brain. I just, I, I, I don't know. I know some people really struggle with that. In fact, it's a, it's a great, great point of contention when it comes to spreading the gospel. Because people who aren't comforted by their own ignorance struggle. And we must be ready to articulate a defense for the hope that we have. Be ready in season and out of season to give a defense, a defense for the hope that is in you. But when it comes to certain grand matters of God's governance over the whole of the universe, we start talking about rape and incest and other things that I will not utter in mixed company. And the notion that God providentially oversees every atom in the universe starts to get real uncomfortable. We would do well to take comfort in ignorance. Being confident of God's providence doesn't mean that you know the future. It also doesn't mean that you understand exactly how all of this is just and good and wise. A lot of people have a hard time with that notion of God providentially overseeing even the evil of our world, meaning that God allows evil to take place. And quickly this turns into God being the orchestrator of evil, which makes him sound like a villainous, fickle, cold overseer, reminiscent of the apathetic Greek gods. The Greek gods um, in practical understanding in the ancient world, the Greek gods were fickle and they famously liked to toy with humans. And if we're not careful, the very mention that God oversees all things including evil for his good, excuse me, for our good and for his glory 
begin to make him sound like one of those. It would be easier on one level to assert that God oversees all things, but that his arm is too short to stop all evil, that he has left it up to us to govern the world, and so if evil takes over, that's because, not because he has allowed it, but because we have failed in our duty to oversee this world he gave to us. But of course, that notion makes God look weak. And so if you're either arguing for the weakness of God or for the unjust character of God, neither of those is a tenable position. What's the alternative? Confidence in your own ignorance. What does Isaiah 55 say famously? Your ways are not like my ways. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. What did Job say when he began to question God about his just overseeing of the world? Job said, I have spoken of things too grand for me. There are things God does, things God allows, he permits to take place that that we cannot in our human brains reconcile. The good news is that we are not God. We do not have the mind of God. We cannot contain in our human brains the full wisdom of God. We are therefore required to do the hardest thing as a human being, which is also subsequently the easiest thing, trust God. Ultimately, ultimately at the, at the base of every unbeliever, their objection to Christian faith at its root core is that they just do not trust God. They cannot trust in his good character, in his good intentions, in his plan for them, in his ability to reconcile them to himself. They don't trust his holiness. They don't trust his oversight of the world. They don't trust the way he has providentially overseen the tragedy and circumstance of their own life, whether it was with abuse or neglect or something of the sort. They do not, cannot bring themselves to trust God. And then when you think about it, alternatively, It is also one of the easiest things to do. How did the world come into being? Let's ask the one person who was there. Right? I mean, where did all this come from? Why is this happening? What is it? Well, God's like, well, here's why. Let me tell you why. I explained it. It's all right here. Here's how the world was created and Here's how sin and evil entered into the world and here's the mercy that I've offered in order to overcome that sin and evil. In fact, here even is the answer to your greatest problem, death. I'm gonna solve that one for you. All you have to do is trust me. Isn't that remarkable? The hardest thing. And so we can't minimize it as if it's not a hard thing. And yet, In the most logical of senses, it's the easiest thing. But that trust goes beyond just the gospel. It goes to how all of this will be reconciled. How it is that right now, slavery in the world is not solved. Slavery in the world is just morphed. Right, we're talking about sex trafficking being the the fastest growing industry in the world and the most profitable 
and yet we're supposed to stand up and I'm gonna ask you to sing about God's goodness and his grace and his love and his mercy. Those are real conflicts, friends, that, that the world around us wrestles with and struggles with as we tell them, God loves you. Oh, God. The God you say providentially oversees all things. Right, that God. Have you read these statistics lately? What does your God have to say about that? We would do well to say, you know, I don't know. I don't have all the answers. But I trust the one who does. You can too. You should too. He's given reason for you to do so. When tragedy befalls us, providence allows us to trust him. When elections go sideways, seem to even have been manipulated by evil people with evil agendas, providence allows us to trust him. When the things that we ask for and pray for do not come, confidence in God's providence allows us to trust him in spite of our own ignorance. Finally, I love the way Calvin speaks of this idea of confidence in our own ignorance. Listen carefully. God never decrees anything without the most righteous reason. That is reasoning. God never decrees anything without the most righteous reason. Which reason, though it may at the present time be unknown to us, will assuredly be revealed to us at the last day in all its infinite righteousness and divine perfection. That's a man who has confidence in his own ignorance. Also, by the way, considered to be one of the brightest minds in the last five, six hundred years. Confident in ignorance. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13? For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even, I have, even as I have been fully known. Confidence or comfort in ignorance. As a concluding point of application, we would maybe consider this. If you are lacking confidence in God's providence, meditate on it. Meditate on it. Uh, the Puritan John Flavel considers meditating on what he calls the mystery of divine providence a Christian duty. Listen, he writes, it is the duty of the people of God to meditate upon these performances of providence for them at all times and especially in times of difficulty and trouble. God has commanded us to meditate on these things. In Micah 6, 5, God compels his people to consider how he allowed Israel's defeat because of their own wickedness with the expressed result to be, if you read it, Micah 6, 5, the end result of your meditating on my providence will be that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Meditate on my providence and in the end you will know This is God compelling his people to consider his providential hand in a wicked foreign nation defeating them in battle, promising this result, that you would know 
if you will, the mind even of the Lord. Know his holiness. Know his righteousness. We are commanded to meditate on his providence. Secondly, God has designed praise around providence. We don't have time to read all of Psalm 107, so I compel you to follow that up. Some homework. Read Psalm 107, and, and in it, consider the connection between praise and providence. Without due observation of the works of providence, no praise can be rendered to God for any of them, end quote. I think one of the reasons why so many worship songs that are released and played on the radio are so vapid and lacking theology is because the writers have not meditated on the providence of God and are therefore ill-equipped to offer to the church accurate praise. There's a lack of meditation on God's providence. God has designed praise around it. Finally, biblical prayer offered to God acknowledges his providence. Conversely, unbiblical prayer is lacking confidence in God's providence. It's lacking recognition of God's providence. Unbiblical prayer says, God, you're the genie. I'm rubbing the lamp in prayer and I'm waiting for my blessings. That's unbiblical prayer. Biblical prayer says, Lord, you oversee all things. I'm confident that you are in control. I'm even comforted in my ignorance that I don't understand how or why these things can be reconciled with your goodness and your mercy and your grace. And yet, I start at this point, you are good. My spouse is dying. In your mercy, would you heal? Right? And if you take her home, that's the greatest healing. Right? Biblical prayer offered to God acknowledges his providence. Without due meditation on his providential oversight, quote, men can order their addresses to God in prayer without due observation of his providence. And they do so to their own peril. Well, I ask you to just, let's conclude with this very one simple word. Oh, fill your hearts with the thought of him and his ways. Labor to get as full and thorough a recognition as you are able of the providence of of God concerning you from first to last. Uh, We would do well to do exactly that. Father, we have come before you uh, weak in mind and yet uh, hungry in thought. We long to understand these aspects of your character. Um, But Lord, even as we have limited understanding, may you expand our comfort in ignorance. May we turn from this conversation not in frustration but in meditation and spend time this week thinking 
about your oversight over the world. Reading in your scriptures how you have raised up nations and brought them low. How you have directed famines and plagues to accomplish your will. And how people in the Bible have been able to express confidence that what Satan and evil men intended for wickedness and evil, you, you intended for good. And though those results sometimes took decades to observe, they are real. We can have that same confidence in your providence. I pray you would help us accordingly as we imitate Paul as he imitates you. In Christ's name, amen.